Hi, Father Eric here. I'd like to introduce to you a good friend of mine, Father Ray Carey, a priest from the Archdiocese of Portland, Oregon, a priest for 47 years. And he's also a friend of many parishioners here as St. Patrick's has the honor of welcoming him about twice a year, presiding at liturgies and giving us some very amazing talks. He's a man that's able to speak to power in the church with his doctorate in clinical psychology as well as a master's degree in theology and counseling psychology. He speaks to conferences of bishops throughout the world as well as clergy, religious gatherings, and many other functions that he's asked to speak at. So he's a man with great knowledge and has a pulse on the church throughout the world. He gave us recently two talks that we'd like to share with you on podcast. The first talk was St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Christians need to remember that God's word, especially Paul's letters and the epistles, have so much meaning and depth and layers that really need to be opened up. And the mystery of God's powerful way of how we live our life in following Jesus. So I hope you open up and take time to really hear the scriptures as Paul's message of hope, of living in Christ, and especially addressing the needs of the community are made known by Father Ray. The second talk, which is much more serious and a little more heavy, you want to be aware of it, is understanding and addressing the internet addiction disorder. In our country now, there is an excessive online gaming problem as well as pornography. And this affects many young men and boys in terms of skills of being able to find employment, having a healthy sexuality and motivation for education, among other items that will be discussed. The statistics that uh, Father Ray shared can be pretty daunting, but he offers also some hope and practical ways of how we can address this important issue. This is talk is meant for anyone who loves a young man, a young woman in their lives, whether it's their sons, whether it's their nephews or grandsons, neighbors, or you happen to be an employer looking to hire young people. Please, this is a must listen. Be open and Father Ray will give you some great insights. Thank you for listening to our podcast here at St. Patrick. Good evening, everybody. Good evening and welcome to you. Uh, delighted, uh, delighted to be with you tonight, uh, and uh, thank you. I'm delighted with the topic, uh, which is chapter one of Ephesians. Um, you know, I just thoroughly loved and enjoyed preparing for this night. Uh, spent a lot of time in the library and a lot of reading, and just I thought, oh my god, oh that's exciting. No, oh, that's good stuff. I love that. You know. In fact, it was, uh, I was working at our seminary after they were all gone for Christmas on this top talk. And uh, so I'm in this beautiful big library. I got it all to myself. And there's three monks that are toward the front. And they're talking to each other all afternoon. Talk, talk. And I'm thinking, this is a library. What are you guys doing? And then it dawned on me, they own it. <laughs> They can do whatever they want, you know. I was thinking on the, on the way over this evening uh, to St. Patrick's also. Tonight, Ephesians, uh, tomorrow night, uh, uh, internet addiction disorder. And I was thinking, tonight's the reason I became a priest. And tomorrow night's the reason I became a psychologist. <laughs> and they're both important to the same goal, you know, which is integrity and wholeness. Before we open up chapter one of the Ephesians, uh, I want to indulge your kindness to, to read it. And I'll, uh, thanks to Kelly, we can throw it on the wall 
also, and you can read along with, so you have two senses working on, on the text. It is so powerful, so beautiful. This is the Revised Standard Translation. I, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are also faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He destined us in love to be his sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. For he has made known to us in all wisdom and insight the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth, in him according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will. We who first hoped in Christ have been destined and appointed to live for the praise of his glory. In him you also, who have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and have believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, which is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power in us who believe according to the working of his great might, which he accomplished in Christ when he raised him from the dead and made him sit at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he has put all things under his feet and has made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You really don't need anything else in the scriptures. That really does it all. That's the power. It's, it's functionally the, 
the last will and testament of Jesus Christ. That's salvation history for us in this first chapter of what is often referred to as Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Actually, Paul didn't write it, and it wasn't really to the Ephesians, but it's all right. <laughs> it's known as Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Uh, it wasn't really, it wasn't written by Paul, most scholars agree, and the reason they say that is because it's, uh, it's not, it, it's not uh, as informal as most of his letters are. Uh, Paul worked for more than two years in Ephesus. Boy, you know a lot of people within two years of working in a community. He doesn't address anybody in this letter. Um, however, however, it is consistent with Paul's theology and knowledgeable of his theology that appears in Colossians and in Corinthians as well. It's very consistent with what Paul taught. It just probably was produced by uh, disciples of Paul. And the reason why we say it really wasn't a letter to the Ephesians, even the, even the oldest text that we have has Ephesus in brackets. Even the oldest text acknowledges that it was probably a circular letter. This would have been a letter for all the churches in Asia Minor and would have been shared among those communities. So it's not like something, oh my gosh, you know, what do you mean? Paul didn't write it, my faith is gonna end or whatever, it's, it's okay, we're good with it. If you really think the Pope writes everything he writes, you know, you... Anyway. Um, that greeting that he gives to the saints in the, in the local churches, to the saints, comma, believers in Jesus Christ. That might seem like, you know, just a nice little introduction to what Paul has to say. By that statement, even, talking to the, to the members of the church, calling them saints, believers in Jesus Christ, he bridges a really huge gap, which is the major purpose of this letter. You see, it's in the Jewish tradition to be called saints. It's the Jews who are the saints of God, reaching all the way back to Exodus, deep into the Torah. The people of Israel are referred to as a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people set apart. Saints means those who participate in the holiness of God. That's the Jewish people. That's their job. That's their DNA, and that's their job description. That's what their responsibility is, is to be those who participate in the holiness of God. By the way, that's the explanation for why you've never had a Jew knock on your door and proselytize you. No question about it, that's never happened. They'll welcome you to the synagogue, even have a comparable to our RCIA process if you want to become a member of the Jewish religion. But their task isn't to proselytize. 
Their task is to be God's people. I'm talking here about Jewish people who are uh, of the religion, not just the cultural Jews. That's what it means to be the chosen people. Those are God's people. They participate in the holiness of God. What Paul does is to make it very clear that the believers in Jesus Christ are also now saints. And these are folks in Asia Minor, by and large Gentile. That, that's what he's saying is a huge thing. And he'll flesh it out much more clearly than this. But he's already in the first line implying that the Gentiles are equal to the Jews, who are believers in Jesus Christ, are saints of God. They participate in the holiness of God. You know, even further, a just quick par uh, parenthetical comment. In the early church, they didn't make any distinction whatsoever between saints alive and saints who had died. You know, believers in Jesus, there was no difference. One didn't have an advantage over the other. They're all saints, saints of God, all participating in the holiness of God. You know, as the history of the Catholic or Christian church uh, progressed, uh, as, as we are wont to do, we politicized it. You know, there, pretty soon it became a controversy. Those Christians who got martyred, well, if they were from my family, I want them buried, you know, closer to the, the renowned ones, the apostles or whoever they may be, and thinking somehow there's an advantage there. Well, when we came to Constantine, when he made it the religion of the Roman emperor, the church itself started to reflect that reality. Like the way life was in the Roman Empire, that must be the way it is in heaven. In other words, in the Roman Empire, if you had a friend who wore purple, who was a member of the Senate of Rome, ah, you had an inn. Just like Chicago today, no difference. <laughs> and so they started to think that way about the, 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 the beloved believers who had died, that maybe we need a patron in heaven, somebody looking out for us. They'd lost that sense of the early church that we're all saints of God, living or dead. We belong to participate in the holiness of God. We as Christians do so as believers in Jesus Christ. And by the way, it progressed to the 12th century, and that's when the, the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, took to himself naming saints. You know, it lost altogether that, that early sense of participating in the holiness of God. And up through John Paul II, he named more saints than all the popes who preceded him combined. Um, and it always struck me as funny as, you know, if you take a look at the, at the number of canonized saints, it's something like 87% something like are male, which is about the right percentage. <laughs> and the vast majority of them are priests or bishops. That, don't you wonder who was closest to the royal mint jelly there, you know, that came to make these decisions? It's crazy stuff. And that's the beauty, one of the beauties of Vatican II, is that it reclaimed our early tradition right out of the scriptures. 
that we are all called to holiness. We all participate in the holiness of God by virtue of our baptism. That it isn't some kind of prize that's held till later on. Our holiness starts now, and we are to be a holy people now. And Paul is already recognizing that and, uh, and describing the local communities in Asia Minor as saints of God who are believers in Jesus Christ. And that includes the Gentiles, which is huge. A little bit more about that shortly. What Paul lays out uh, in his uh, introduction here, it's a blessing. You know, that whole thing that, that he gave was a blessing. It's 202 words long, long blessing. But what Paul is laying out there is the, the Father's plan of salvation. Paul will call that the mystery of Christ. The Father's plan of salvation. Jesus is the means by which the Father lavishes grace upon God's people. And that's the verb, that, that uh, equivalent verb to the Greek that Paul's using, that God lavishes, just lavishes grace upon God's people. And he's blessing God, Paul is, for blessing us in Christ with every spiritual blessing under the heavens. Baraka, which is the, the word, Hebrew word for blessing, uh, a blessing is at the heart of prayer. Like, uh, for Paul to do that is just as normal as, as saying hello to somebody or good morning. Uh, to, to give a blessing, to, to do, give any kind of prayer, always begins with a blessing. Always begins with a blessing. Here at St. Patrick's, unless you go to the daily mass, you don't really hear that Jewish blessing that we stole right out of the Jewish uh, prayer book. It's uh, when the priest is saying the prayer over the gifts. Blessed are you, Lord, God of all creation. Through your goodness, we have this bread to offer, which earth is given. So straight out of the Jewish prayer. It always begins with, blessed are you, Lord, God of all creation. Or, blessed are you, Lord, God of all that is. Or, but it always begins with, blessed are you, Lord. That's what Paul's doing here. He's blessing God for blessing us in Christ. Uh, and in his blessing, he lays out the theology of church. This is, this is a, this whole six chapters of Ephesians lays out the most gorgeous theology of church you could read. That's not a, a hyperbolic statement to make. The theology of church that Paul lays out in his letter to the Ephesians is magnificent. It is glorious. And it, and it, and it lays out this, uh, this sense of understanding of what the community is really all about. Paul is reminding the community for all that God has done for us in Christ, that we are the community of Christ. We're the rememberers of Christ. And he lays out the important place that the church places, fills in God's plan, which again he calls the mystery of Christ. The church is not just some kind of bureaucratic uh, enterprise. The church is rooted 
in God's plan for us. And by church, kahal, or ecclesia, we mean the assembly of the believers in Jesus Christ, the saints of God in Jesus Christ. That's what the church is. It's not about hierarchy. It's not about domination or power or any of those other things. It's about being the assembly of folks who remember, who remember Jesus in a living way. Paul lays that out by saying three things that God has done to bless us. Three key things. First, that God has blessed believers. Secondly, that God has predestined them for adoption. Predestined them. In other words, it's the eternal plan of God that the Gentiles would experience adoption as sons and daughters of God. Like that wonderful sense of full birthright given to you. You know, I remember one time I was in a, a group of educators and uh, I was chatting with a, an administrator and one of the teachers in her district came up to us and she was just, you know, saying hello and started to chat. And unbelievable to me or to the administrator, this teacher said to the administrator, you know, I, I, I know you have four kids uh, and one of them was adopted. I, I don't know which one. And Barbara said, I don't remember. I've known this woman for a long time. She has four children. All four are adopted. But I love the way she responded to that. I don't remember. Like, that distinction evaporates for me. Well, that's what Paul's saying, which is astounding when we get to talk a little bit about the Gentiles. So God has done three things. He's blessed them as believers. He's predestined their adoption as sons and daughters. And thirdly, he has made known the mystery of God's plan. He's made it known in Jesus Christ. This letter is about how and why the community of Christ followers assumes the privileges of Israel. Israel, chosen people of God. The Israelites have an intimacy with God which goes beyond comparison. They have an incredible closeness to God. Let me give you a very concrete example. You know, the, the Jews in their prayers, you look at the Psalms, which we pr pr pray every day in the church. You look at the Psalms. Boy, the, the Jews are not at all shy about telling God what to do. Catholics, I think, might come in second place there. But the Jews are very much accustomed to telling God what to do. As you have used us to show them your glory, you know, we're your people, now use them to show us your power. Beat them up. Beat them up. Jews at war. I mean, they automatically assume that anybody who was the enemy of God's chosen people is the enemy of God. That their, their, their sense of intimacy with God. Here's a very concrete example of the intimacy of God. In Psalm 77, it's one of the Babylonian captivity psalms, the Jews who have like 50 years 
they were out of Jerusalem. 50 years under the thumb of the Babylonians. And they are desperate. No place to worship. They've lost their music. They've lost their, their prayer. They've lost everything that identified them except their memory. And in that Psalm 77, uh, the English translation goes something like this. You know, it goes, have you forgotten us? Yo, we're your people, right? Have you forgotten us? And there, there's one line. I love the antiseptic English translation. It is, has God forgotten to be gracious? In other words, has God forgotten God's manners? You know what the Hebrew says? You can check this out in the Anchor Bible footnotes if you want. What the Hebrew says is, has God's vulva dried up? That's a little intimate. You know, what, what the people are saying, what the prayer is saying there is, don't we stir anything in you? Don't you recognize us? Don't we matter to you? Powerful. That's just one of many, many samples of the Hebrew way of being close to God, mattering to God, and they knew it. Loved by God, and they knew it. Well, Paul is saying the Gentiles who believe in Jesus Christ can now take their place and assume the privileges of Israel. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people set apart, right out of Exodus. In fact, if you want to take a look at a variety of the Eucharistic prayers, it will reflect all of this theology of church. Those words are used right in the Eucharistic prayers. Not every one of them, but they, they, uh, they, mirror, they mirror exactly what Paul's saying to them. The intimacy with God. The new covenant in the blood of Christ sets us apart as God's people in Jesus Christ. God's people are no longer defined by the ethnic election of being Jewish, but by faith in Christ. Please don't understand Paul in any way saying that God's covenant with Israel is abrogated. It is not. And in fact, St. John the 23rd had to reiterate that as well because there has been, uh, not just ethnically in certain countries, Catholic countries, anti-Semitism. There is a good measure of anti-Semitism that crept its way into a Catholic perspective, blaming the Jews for crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So much so, one of the changes that St. John the 23rd made to the Good Friday bidding prayers, I don't know if you remember that, but on Good Friday there are prayers that are prayed, like our prayers of the faithful, for the universal church. But that prayer for the Jews was for the perfidious Jews. Wow, how denigrating that is. Perfidious, meaning faithless. For the perfidious Jews, John said, no, no, no. And he changed that prayer to pray for our Jewish, for the Jewish people, the first to hear the word of God. 
And John also, and John Paul II did the same thing, also said that God's covenantal relationship with, with the Jews did not cease with Jesus Christ. In other words, it was a firm grasp of the obvious. They're saying, boy, our ideas can't limit God. God can do covenants in any way that God chooses. This is, this is really something. To, it's, it's a huge thing for Paul to be teaching this. It got him in a lot of trouble in darn near every synagogue he was in. Because he was teaching the same thing here, that the Jewish people uh, who are God's chosen are now joined by all who believe in Jesus Christ, whether Jew or Gentile. If they are believers in Jesus Christ, they are um, inheritors of the promises of God. You know what, you know what it echoes? John, John the Baptist said a very shocking thing in the Perean desert where he preached. And large crowds came to that, by the way. You read the scriptures. There also were Pharisees and scribes, the power brokers, the priests from the temple who came out into the desert to hear John the baptizer. And remember, he himself was born into a rural priestly family. His father, Zechariah, was a priest. That means so is John. And John abandoned it. He abandoned the priesthood, the Jewish priesthood. He also condemned the priests of Jerusalem as being, uh, as having abdicated the covenant. He also abandoned the temple. Boy, these are, these are huge things John was doing in the temple, in, in, the, in the desert. And when the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees objected to John, they were insulted by him, they were offended by him. And they said to him, we are sons of Abraham. And John's response was, because, you know, what he's saying is, you have, you have so uh, abandoned everything that we are about, you have abrogated the covenant. And John's response was, sons of Abraham, God could raise up sons and daughters of Abraham from the stones of this desert. You are no better than the Gentiles, is what he was saying to them. You don't count anymore. Whoa. Powerful. Revolutionary. If Herod Antipas hadn't killed John the Baptist, there were plenty more in line who would have been happy to do so. And all of them were in Jerusalem. Paul is doing the same thing here. He's saying something incredibly shocking to any of the Jews in Asia Minor. Because Paul's saying, these Gentiles who believe in Jesus Christ, saints of God, same as the Jews. Incredible. One of the key things here, and uh, if any of you happen to be awake during the homily over the weekend, uh, and if you weren't, it's okay. I, I have put myself to sleep. Uh, I put my sainted father to sleep. And I told him, I said, I don't care if you sleep during the homily. Don't snore. And he said, well, if you can't say it in eight minutes, it's not worth hearing. 
But we talked about the promise of the Father, which is the Holy Spirit, and that we are sealed in the Holy Spirit, that we belong to God in a most precious way. We have been set apart and sealed in the Holy Spirit as being owned by God through Jesus Christ. And Paul also says this. It's so powerful in his theology of church, and we echo this in the, in the Eucharistic prayers as well, that our receiving of the Holy Spirit is the first installment of God's pledge to us. As the Eucharistic prayer says, you sent the Holy Spirit on us as first fruits to those who believe. And the, the, the key piece of that is that we're given the Holy Spirit as a foretaste, as a pledge of what's waiting for us in the fullness of life in God's love. So it's like the first installment. And, it, and when Paul talks about that, he purposefully uses the possessive pronoun, our. He's talking to Gentiles in Asia Minor. Our inheritance, our foretaste of eternal life in God's presence. Father Eric actually pointed this out to me several years ago when the new missile came out, about which neither one of us was particularly enthusiastic. But he pointed out something that I've noticed ever, ever since, that very frequently uh, built into the prayers is the word graciously, graciously. And Father Eric made the point that, that uh, he loved that, and I've grown to love it as well, that it does not assume somehow that we are impetuous children standing before God, uh, redeeming coupons or something, that we're always consciously aware of the gratuitous graciousness of God by which God lavishes on us the Holy Spirit, our inheritance. Recalling God's blessing is to the praise of his glory. If you remember what we were talking about about saints, uh, that becomes really important for us. That's our job, is praise, worship, and praise. The praise and glory of God. That's what we're, our task is. It's one of the reasons why... Here's a specious statement. I don't want to go to Mass anymore. I don't get anything out of it. You've all heard that from somebody. Maybe somebody in your house. I don't want to go to Mass anymore. I don't get anything out of it. Not the job. That's not the task. That's not the goal. Our job as God's beloved people is to give praise and glory to God. We come to worship God. All the prayers of the Mass are oriented to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We come to praise and worship God. The task is not to get something out of it. If we do, that's extra. The praise and glory of God, that's what we do. That's what we're about. Um, it also has to do with, um, you know, the, the last thing that Jesus says after the consecration, Jesus' words, you know, when we finish the consecration of the 
uh, bread and the wine into the body and blood of Christ as a faith community. The words of Jesus that we remember are, do this in memory of me. Do this in memory of me. Two things about that. Number one, you got to be here to do this in memory of me. You got to be here. You know, the second thing is, and it's very personal. I was very blessed with uh, parents that I loved and worshipped, especially my father, my God. He was such an incredible man. And I remember one evening in Oregon. Oregon summers are cool at night. And we were sitting out in the backyard, and my father said to me, he said, uh, get me a blanket, Ray. Get me a blanket, Ray. I love that man so much, I'd have killed a lion and skinned it for him. Get me a blanket, Ray. That's, that's the sense of the imperative from Jesus that I feel like every time I go to Mass. Do this in memory of me. Do this in memory of me. It's a loving request. It's a privilege request. It's because we are God's saints and God's holy people. Do this in memory of me. Absolutely. So praise and worship, that's what we're about. That's what our task is. It's by the Holy Spirit that we can understand the mystery of Christ that God has revealed, God's plan for our salvation in Jesus Christ. And the Spirit helps us to grasp the value that we've been given in Christ. That's what Paul means by knowledge that transforms us. Knowledge that changes us. I don't know a lot of people who had their lives changed by Pythagoras' theorem. It's really handy. I always, when I'm driving over major expansion bridges, hope that the engineers learned Pythagoras' theorem. <laughs> but it's not transforming of our lives. What the Spirit gives us is a knowledge that transforms us, that it powerfully changes us. The next thing I want to open up with you, and I, I'm going to look at these next two things as a takeaway for you, because it darn sure is for me. <laughs> i got to tell you in advance. I'm an old English teacher, and my uh, in earlier iteration of life, uh, I didn't teach old English. I'm old and I taught English. <laughs> but I have learned to be allergic to prepositions. In fact, Trish and I had this conversation last summer that it's a, it's a personal foible. I ask your general absolution for this, that when lectors emphasize a preposition in proclaiming the scripture, I lose a disc. <laughs> it's the only time I want to put a forehead, uh, a fork in somebody's forehead. <laughs> There's almost never a reason to emphasize a preposition. They don't deserve it. <laughs> a verb, yeah, a noun, yeah. Occasionally adverbs, yeah. Preposition, never, almost, never. Here's an exception tonight. The two words I have learned in my study and prayer about Ephesians that I love with all my heart are two prepositions. In Christ, 
with Christ. And it's Paul's special meaning of those two words. And if I have the ability to transfer to you tonight what Paul means by that, you'll have been served very well here, and you can take something away tonight that will be precious to you for the rest of your life. I'm not exaggerating that. Paul loves the phrase, in Christ. Here's how much he loves it. In the letters that our scripture scholars are fairly in chorus that Paul wrote, he uses the phrase, in Christ, 98 times. In the letters that were referred to as by Paul, but they're like Ephesians, you know, written by one of his disciples. The phrase, in Christ, shows up 68 times. So whoever wrote those letters got it. They understood Paul's theology. You know where, how, much, how often it appears in the rest of the New Testament? Seven times. Like all the Gospels, all the other pastoral letters, seven times. This phrase is crucial to understanding Paul's understanding of what it means for us to be in the plan of God in Christ. In Christ, it's DNA level. It's DNA level. It's who we are. It's the primary way that we are to think of ourselves. More than anything else, we are in Christ. We have a relationship with Christ that goes beyond closeness that we can imagine in any other venue. This week I received a little video from uh, a young mother whose uh, wedding I had the privilege to witness. This is a video of her little six-month-old daughter, Haley. Haley is so proud of herself because she can roll over and do some other stuff now. And she's got her mouth working. Doesn't have any words yet, but she can sure chatter. She can sure chatter. And this video, it just fills my heart with love for this little girl. Every time I see her, oh my God, she's like more precious. You all know what I'm describing. You've held those babies of your own. You know, that, that love that just continues to, you know, just deepen within you for these loved ones of yours. It's that kind of closeness that Paul's getting at with, we are in Christ. Everything else strips aside. We're in Christ. We belong to Christ, the most important thing we know about ourselves. I've mentioned to some of you before, I was in Salt Lake City uh, some time back, and I was uh, to work with a diocese, and I was wandering around uh, the Mormon headquarters up on Temple Square, and a Mormon lady came up to me, and she said, pardon me, sir, what church do you belong to? And I paused, and I said to her, I belong to Jesus Christ. I gather with the Catholics. <laughs> she kind of shook her head and walked away. <laughs> I really wasn't being a smart off. I'm completely capable of that, but I wasn't doing that. That's Paul's theology, and boy, that's mine too. I belong to Jesus Christ. We are in Christ. We are in Christ. And that's how we see one another. We are in Christ. And that's a connection that, that just transcends all other connections, being in Christ. You know something? That's the major reason why our Pope, 
Pope Francis continues to rail against clericalism. He hates clericalism. Any sense of entitlement that priests or bishops or deacons have, you know, like that somehow that we're children of a higher God or that somehow, you know, uh, there's some kind of birthright that we never have to pick up a check in a restaurant or something. I hate that. He's constantly cautioning against that. And the reason for that is the most important thing we can say about each other, we are baptized into the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are in Christ. Everything else is secondary. Our marriages, priesthood, whatever you do, we are in Christ. That's who I am. Priesthood is what I do. I am in Christ. We belong to Christ in a powerful way. For Paul, being in Christ is an existential statement. Existential meaning it goes right to the essence of who you are. It goes right to the most important thing about you, that you are in Christ. You belong to Christ. You are in Christ. The second phrase that Paul uses is being with Christ. In Christ, with Christ. And he uses this phrase in almost all of his letters, being with Christ. Not with the high frequency that he uses the phrase in Christ, but he uses that, um, that sense of being with Christ. This is a 65-cent theological word. It has eschatological implications. Eschatology is the study of the last things. Heaven, you know, heaven. Eschatology, the end things. Uh, with Christ relates to the end things. That our goal, our, our birthright, the fulfillment of the foretaste of the Spirit is to be with Christ when we die, that we are with Christ. Those who are in Christ by baptism and faith at death are with Christ. And the expectation is, by the Father's plan, that mystery of Christ, that after death, and this is Paul's theology, we will immediately be transferred into solidarity with Christ. It's a, it's a corporeal thing. It's the risen body of Christ, the resurrected body, that we will receive that at death, that we are immediately transported in Christ, with Christ. Uh, it's a state of being uh, in Christ for those who sleep in death. Remember we said earlier that the early church made no distinction whatsoever between saints who were alive and saints who had fallen asleep in the Lord. It's that sense of that total belonging to Christ. Uh, those who sleep in death are sleeping with Christ in Christ's risen life. Paul also calls this same phenomenon walking in the newness of life. It's really powerful. You know, not long ago, uh, a veteran of the Korean War, a hero, 
of the Korean War. PBS actually uh, made a film on this man's work in the Korean War. He was an officer, great hero, highly decorated, also decorated this summer by the Korean government. He was in the early 90s, and I'd known him over the last several years because I say mass in the nursing home where he was, and uh, Ed was coming close to his death. Had all his marbles. Uh, I and another friend were praying with him. I anointed him in your name, that beautiful sacrament of healing. And he was in congestive heart failure. And I said to Ed, Ed, how you doing? Are you, are you nervous? Are you frightened? You know, facing his death. And he said to me, oh, Ray, he said, I'm going to be with Christ. It's a new adventure for me. I love the way he said it. That conviction within him, oh, I'm going to be with Christ. A new adventure. He died that week. God bless Ed. Just incredible. But he embodied, the, without ever having studied Paul, he embodied Paul's theology of what it means to be in Christ, longing to be with Christ. In, and it's coming for all of us. It's coming for all of us. I check the obituaries every day, right, just to make sure. You know, it's, it's coming for all of us. We who are in Christ are longing to be with Christ. That great, powerful gift. Uh, and that's why it, it's at the heart of the theology of the church as well. You know, our beloved dead, our beloved dead are very much present to us as we gather at the table of the Lord to be refreshed by the word and the breaking of the bread and the blessing of the cup. No mass is ever said that doesn't commemorate our beloved dead, that doesn't remember them. And remember them not just out of, oh, like an album. We remember our beloved dead from the living memory of the church. The living memory of the church. They are very much as members of the church as you and I are. They who lived in Christ are with Christ. Powerful theology. Gorgeous theology of the church Paul gave us. You know what else is really important? It's a good thing we don't have exams at Mass. I wouldn't pass half of them either. But here's one that most people wouldn't pass. It's something we say every time we say the creed. He descended into hell, and on the third day he rose again from the dead. Whoa, what do you mean he descended into hell? What's that mean? He descended into hell. How does that fit in to Paul's theology of the church? God bless you. Scared her, huh? You know, I think the best way I can, I can uh, attempt to open up that theological belief that we have as a faith community is with Michelangelo's great paintings. Michelangelo has a gorgeous painting in the Sistine Chapel of Christ reaching into Sheol. Sheol is the Hebrew notion of a place after death. The best image I know of it is a, a musty attic, you know, with sheets over the old furniture. It's pure stasis. Nothing's moving. Everything is quiet and awaiting God's revelatory love. And Jesus descending into hell. It's into Sheol and with a hand reaching down 
for Adam and Eve and the patriarchs and Miriam and you know all the ones that had gone before who were faithful saints of God in the covenant. That make any sense to you? That phrase he descended into hell is an announcement of the of the incredible encompassing theology of the church that we live. It includes our beloved dead. And we commend to God's great love and mercy without any judgment on anybody how that takes place. Because as, we, as we'll see in just a moment, God's plan is a lot wider than most of us Catholics are willing to give permission to. The mystery of Christ. A couple connected thoughts. The first half of the letter to the Ephesians, Asia Minor, the first half is inviting the hearers, the audience, to join in praising and thanking God for the mystery of the plan of salvation which has united them in Christ. The second half encourages the readers or hearers of the letter to persevere in the social and personal dimensions of life as a new creation in Christ. What Paul's telling them to do, who are in Christ, is to be about what Jesus asked them to do. Feed the hungry, clothe the naked, comfort the sorrowful, visit the sick, care about your neighbor. That's the job of those who are in Christ. In fact, Paul's a little more blunt to one of the other communities in, in uh, Greece and uh, the Thessalonians. You know, when they received the gospel, when they heard the good news and that the church awaits Christ's coming again, they all thought that's going to happen right away. So they quit their jobs and they're sitting on a curb. And Paul's saying, get off your curbs <laughs> and get to work. Do stuff here. That the, that the work of those who are in Christ is lifting burdens from the last and the least. From the last and the least. So that's the, the two halves of Paul's letter. Join in thanking and praising God for the mystery of Christ and then do your social responsibility. The focus of the letter is on God's foreordained plan, or another way to think of it is God's forever plan for inviting, uniting Jew and Gentile in the risen Christ. In the risen Christ. And not only that, the apostle teaches that it is God's plan to bring all to salvation in Christ. However, that's going to happen. However, that's going to happen. So all this craziness about who counts, who doesn't, who's an infidel, who isn't, who's authentic, who isn't, the God and Father of us all's plan is to bring us to salvation. And a clear, it's also in Colossians, a clear cosmic dimension to the mystery of Christ in God's eternal plan. 
a cosmic dimension. Well, if you ever get a chance to see any of the movies that were uh, taken from the Hubble, my goodness, it's just incredible. This, the, our cosmos is so huge we can't measure it. It's changing so fast we can't measure it. There's no calculus available to us to measure the vastness of the universe. And yet, in Paul's writings, he reveals that it's part of God's plan in the mystery of Christ to present all creation to the Father. You know, I remember in the parish where I am, there was a, a little boy who, uh, whose family dog died. And, oh, it just crushed him. It just broke his heart. You know, he just, he just couldn't get beyond, you know, how his dog could die. And what happens to my dog? Where's my dog? And you know what comforted him? You know how he made sense out of it? I remember chuckling to myself when I heard it from him. My dog's on God's bed. My dog's on God's bed. Not very far from Paul's theology, by the way, that all creation, redeemed by Christ, is presented to the Father. Worship and praise, that's why we exist, and loving service. Those who are in Christ have been given the gifts of God's favor. Remember that knowledge that transforms? That's that sense of wisdom that comes to you. Take a look at your own lives as a story of grace. Look what you know now, having lived on the planet for a while. Isn't it true? Not your knowledge, your wisdom. I teach in our seminary. I got 21 deacons in my class this year who are going to be ordained to the priesthood this year. That's the biggest we've ever had. And I bust myself to give them the best counseling skills I can to help them know how to deal with suicidal folks and depressed folks and how to help people make good decisions to get married. You know, practical, practical, practical. The boy, by the end of the course, you know, I always feel really empty. The, the response they give me is always, whoa, Father, thanks so much. Oh, my God. I, I didn't know what I didn't know. I, you still don't know what you don't know. <laughs> but what I feel so empty about is I want to give them the wisdom that comes from 47 years in the priesthood. Can't do it. Can't do it. I remember when I, my oldest brother first graduated from medical school, and uh, he got married. And he came down to see me with his new bride. I was a construction laborer on the Oregon coast. I didn't know Sikkim. I was like 18, first year of college. And I said to my brother, I said, I don't know stuff. You know, he just finished medical school. I said, are you like a doctor now? Do I like introduce you as doctor? And he said, maybe in 50 years. That's one of the reasons he became a great doctor. Maybe in 50 years. Let me learn something first. We are given that wisdom by the gift of the Holy Spirit to be able to see the light of Christ in our lives and to be able to ask ourselves with the lenses of the gospel, what's the right thing for someone in Christ to do at this moment? What's the right thing for someone in Christ to do at this moment? That's one of the reasons why Pope Francis himself said this, 
the task of the church is to help us form our consciences, not to replace them. Trust the living spirit within you to make good, wholesome, moral decisions because you are in Christ. We participate now in God's redemptive plan, but it's not yet complete. The pledge of our future, of our future, will be with Christ. In the end, this beautiful letter is a call, call for two, two or three things. It's a call for praise and worship of God because of the lavish gift that makes us in Christ. And there are a couple of things that characterize us if we are authentic with our baptismal uh, signing in the Spirit. First of all, loving service. Loving service. That our life is about making life better for others, beginning with the last and the least, with the marginal ones, the ones who have no power. That that's how we manifest being in Christ. That's how we should be recognized as fellow Christians. We're about the business of lifting burdens. And secondly, joy and gratitude for the grace and peace that comes to us from Jesus the Christ, from being in Christ. Our whole lives, our whole being, oriented to being with Christ as we transition from this life. It's the richest you could ever be knowing that you are in Christ. I really mean that. I, I remember, oh, a number of years ago in a parish where I was in Eugene, Oregon, uh, there was a family, of, a big family of kids uh, really struggling, you know, financially to make it. Happy people, you know, happy, fun place to go. Yeah, there's always stuff going on, a whole passel of kids. Uh, she, the mother cleaned houses for, you know, income for the family, and the father drove a vegetable truck. Somehow, day one, like multi-million dollar lottery, like gabillions they won. And I remember seeing that in the paper and I thought, oh boy, I hope they're getting some good advice, you know. And I didn't see them. I, was, I had moved on to other ministries. But a couple of years after that, like maybe five years after that, I was filling in in a parish in Eugene where they are members. And they came up to talk to me, you know, and they, they were remembering quotes the good old days. I said, you mean when we were all poor and I still am? <laughs> he said, no, yeah, we, we, I baptized like half their kids, so I knew the family well. And you know what they told me? They've never been unhappier. Unhappier. They've never been unhappier. You know, with all these millions, they bought beautiful homes for each of their kids, and the kids started, well, She's got a bigger house than I have. Bigger house than I have. Or, well, you gave their kids, you know, you, you didn't give our kids. And it was like they never were at each other's throats before, but they were then. And it was like the, the, the father of the family said, I wish we could just give it all back and I could get my vegetable truck back. 
I said, have you thought about buying the vegetable company? You know, it's a, I didn't say that, I didn't say that. But the whole point here, that little anecdote is that being in Christ makes us richer than we could ever imagine. It's the, it's the pearl of great price. It's the absolute blessing and crown of grace that the Father has bestowed on us, lavished on us in Jesus Christ. Well, that's one chapter. It's a six-chapter letter, so I hope I've piqued your interest to take a look at the other five chapters, and they'll make a lot more sense every time you see that phrase, in Christ. You know, boy, that means something special now. That means something special. That's more important than your blood type, that you are in Christ and longing to be with Christ. Two little prepositions, and I bow in sorrow for all the bad things I've said about prepositions. <laughs> <laughs>